Hello, Happy New Year, and welcome to another episode of Teen People, the podcast that catches up with folks from Teen People magazine. My name is Anna Soper. As a librarian, I sometimes hear that old line, why do we need libraries and librarians? Everything's online. The short answer to that question is A, not everything's online, and B, sure everything's online, until you hit a paywall. The slightly longer or more nuanced answer to that question is, we need libraries and librarians the same way we need journalism and journalists, now more than ever. Teen People recognized that in their mentorship of young journalists, creating a diverse news team that contributed to serious and light stories alike. Lucas Pierman was one of those young journalists, scouted by Teen People after he wrote a review of the fledgling teen magazine in 1998. Today, Lucas is the news director of the Las Cruces Sun News in Las Cruces, New Mexico. He spoke with me from his home in Las Cruces just two days before November's presidential election. We talked about his most memorable interview for Teen People, his collection of Teen People news team memorabilia, and his thoughts on the role of journalism today. Wow, look at all this memorabilia. Yeah, so I, I found a few things. Um, this is the teen people from uh, February of 1999. It's the uh -huh. one year anniversary edition. Yeah. And I found my um, letter addressed to me that says, welcome to the news team and, and describes what the news team is all about. And then I also have um, in here, these are guidelines for interviewing. You're going to interview somebody, this is what you need to do because they were working with a uh, you know, journalist fresh out of high school or just beginning in college. And so a lot of us were, were new to journalism. Tell me about how you got involved with Teen People magazine. When I was in high school growing up in, in Las Cruces, I, there was a program called Excel, which, which placed high school seniors at a place of uh, employment um, for the afternoons. I'd go to school in the mornings, and then in the afternoons, you would go to a job site. I wanted to write for newspapers. And so I said, I want to you know, work for the, uh, the daily newspaper, Las Cruces Sun News. And so that was the job site that I was placed at. Um, and, and so this was this my senior year, and uh, the newspaper editors at the time said, well, we have a weekly under 18 page. Why don't you... Uh, why don't you write a feature a week for that and keep up with the calendar and, you know, let people know what's going on. And while I was there, a copy of uh, the first Teen People magazine, which first started published in February of 1998, um, which would have been my last semester of high school, um, it appeared at the Las Cruces Sun News. And so the editor said, well, why don't you browse through this and review it? And we'll put that review um, on the under 18 page. And so I did. And so I looked through Teen People magazine. Uh, this is neat, you know, and, and I don't have access to that review, so I don't remember it word for word. But from what I can remember, I, I said what Teen People does differently is it's bringing real teens into their publication, right? It's, it's not the, uh, the fluff that you might have seen with other uh, publications that were geared toward 18 audience, um, things like, um, you know, here's how to look your best when your boyfriend visits or something, you know, um, teen people wanted to say here, here's some real issues, you know, here's, um, teens, LGBT teens, right? Here's, uh, um, if you're dealing with a, uh, eating disorder, you know, here's some things that you need to know. 
And so it was uh, that kind of publication really resonated with me who wanted to be a, a real journalist, right? Like these are real stories, real people. Um, and so I gave teen people a, a favorable review and recommended it to our, our community in Las Cruces. And uh, I thought that was it. I didn't think too much more about the magazine after that um, until, I don't know, over the summer, I was contacted by a editor at Teen People. And he said, hey, we read your review of Teen People, and we'd like to invite you to be a member of our inaugural news team. I said, whoa, that's, that's cool. You know, that, that sounds neat. Um, and so tell me more about that. You know, I, and so I got to learn about what the news team was. And it was uh, 33 teens from across the country. They were high school or um, just starting off in college. And they would be uh, informing the teen people editors of just what was, what was buzzing in their communities. You know, what, what kind of trends were, uh, were happening? What kind of topics were people talking about? You know, what, what sort of real issues are out there? You know, we can you pitch a story or write a story. And, and so that was, uh, that was neat. And so I agreed to be a part of teen people's um, inaugural news team. And I found my letter that says, welcome to the team. So that's, that is so cool. So this was uh, June of 1998. <laughs> wow. So you have a whole archive of things there. You have your Teen People News Team t-shirt, which is an awesome piece of memorabilia. <laughs> that's so cool. <laughs> so this was sent to me. It must have been uh, the, probably that summer of 1998. <laughs> wow. As part of your welcome package? Part of a welcome back, mm -hmm. sure. And you've kept the letter, uh, and you've mm -hmm. kept the issue in which you were published. Uh, I, why, why has that archive been important to you to keep that collection of materials? Yeah, I, I was, uh, you know, from Las Cruces, New Mexico, where, where not much happens, right? And, and so it's, uh, to be a part of this nationwide news team, it meant a lot to me as a journalist growing up in this world. Um, and, and a few things that I've carried through um, to my career now. I'm, I'm still a journalist. In fact, I'm I'm the editor of the of the newspaper where I where I started. But when the Teen People editor contacted me, they had read my article online, and that kind of was a light bulb moment for me in my career as a journalist, in the sense that anything that I write has the potential to go nationwide like this in the internet age, right? I'm not just writing for my neighbor down the street. I'm not just writing for, you know, Tom on the other side of town. Whatever I write has the potential to be seen in New York City, has the potential to be seen in Beijing, wherever. And so it just uh, it, it kind of like, this is what journalism is capable of nowadays. Um, you know, you have at the internet, you know, the whole world at your fingertips. And so you can get this message out uh, far and wide. And so I was so thrilled to be a part of the news team because, uh, you know, even imagine just being in Las Cruces and you have like this, uh, this little town that you're trying to cover. And now you're a part of this nationwide team and things that I can write can be you know, still seen all over the world through, through print, which is pretty cool. There are two experiences that stand out with Teen People magazine. Um, one was the chance to interview Manny Malhotra, um, who was part of, let me get my uh, 20 teens who will change the world, right? And so I remember this project 
and and the, uh, the the editors of Teen People reached out to the news team and say, hey, we're we're putting together these twenty teens who will change the world. Uh, you know, tell me about some sort of uh, a teen in your community that will that will do that. And uh, and and so I, I put in a submission. The, my submission, I don't think, uh, was one of the ones featured. What he wasn't one of the ones featured. But uh, the editor said, hey, we know you're into sports. You want to interview Manny Mahotra, who at that time had just been drafted by the New York Rangers. Um, he was 18 years old. We were the same age. He was, you know, just a couple months older than I was. Um, and here he was being drafted into the NHL. Right. And I was like, oh, this would be great. And so, I, I, yeah, I wasn't a huge NHL guy growing up in the Southwest, uh, but I was familiar enough with it. And so, so sure. And so I, they said, Team People was able to facilitate a phone interview. So I was at my house in Las Cruces interviewing um, Manny, uh, who I believe is is, uh, is Canadian. Um, and so we, uh, you know, we were just two 18 year old guys, just you know, talking. And you know, we talked for an hour or so um, about a lot more things than hockey. Um, and so I wrote a uh, you know an 800 word story about Manny and his journey to where he got to now. And I think they took about a uh, hundred words and put a little brief in here, which was great. And it was kind of one of my first experiences into uh, you know what an editor will <laughs> decide. You know, they just took the uh, this tidbit, this tidbit, this tidbit, and put it in there. Um, it was pretty neat. Did you think um, that that editor captured the, it sounds like, you know, if you had over an hour conversation yeah. with someone who's also the same age as you, it sure. sounds like you had a very meaningful conversation. Do you think that was reflected in the hundred words that they published ultimately? I felt that there was more that I talked to Manny about that uh, was important to me and uh, as a teenager. But, uh, you know, I know now as an editor, when you're dealing with space concerns and, uh, you know, you know, for the purposes of what they were doing, they just wanted the highlights and they took the highlights and that, and that was fine. Um, and that was cool to see. So that, that was one experience. Hmm. And what was so meaningful about your conversation with Manny Malhotra? Like I said, we were like we were the same age, and in in talking to him, I think he was uh, able to open up to me in in a way that he might have not have with a uh, with a, a more uh, professional journalist, somebody who was older at the time. You know, like uh, so. Tell me about this. Uh, uh, you know, being in these. NHL camps, and you know, he's telling me about like, oh yeah, you know, and then you get to, you know, you're on the road like this, and you're meeting these guys, and you know, you're you're talking about this and that and this and that, and uh, uh, you know, I think that he was talking to me as another 18 year old, you know, like this is what's cool about that, and in something that that I could understand that maybe not somebody that that wasn't in his generation would maybe think that that was cool. One thing that um, I certainly came to understand about him is he realized because he was of Indian descent, like what that meant to the sport of hockey, which is, um, you know, in, especially in 1998, not a very diverse sport. Um, and he realized that, you know, and it's like, it's a lot of pressure, right? Like a lot of times people look at me and, and say like, oh, you you know, you're um, the entirety of India is like looking at you right now. And, and that was a lot of pressure for him. Um, but he was like, you know, I, I get it. 
and I can, you know, take that and do good things with that. And I'm confident in my ability to do that. It's interesting that you say that, you know, that was 1998 and the NHL, when it was able to resume the playoffs this year, the NHL did so at the time when the Black Lives Matter protests were uh, reviving across America and Canada, too. Um, And so the NHL had to acknowledge that this year. Uh, they had to acknowledge the, the the traditional whiteness of the sport and um, and the lived experiences of of its players uh, who come from diverse backgrounds. Um, so I wonder, it'd be fascinating if you could interview him today. Right. Yeah, and he, he's a, an assistant coach, I believe. Uh, so he's still very heavily involved in in the NHL, and uh, you know we. In 1998, he was labeled as a teen who would change the world, right? And to talk to him now, like, tell me how you did change the world, you know? And I think he did. I mean, I think he's been a role model for um, Indian Canadians um, to, to look up to and say, like, hey, this this guy can play professional hockey. Like, I can too. I also just think, like, it must have been like he told you about the, you know, the road life, the the excitement, the training camp experience. But I would imagine that it, it must have been challenging in many ways. And he had a really good support system um, that was encouraging and, and, and gave him confidence without allowing him to be cocky. <laughs> Maybe that's the best way to, to say that. Um, so he really had like a lot of confidence that he could do this. He could perform at the NHL, right. And, and be a, uh, um, an NHL player. Um, but he wasn't saying like, yeah, I'm going to be the next Wayne Gretzky. Right. It was, uh, no, like, I know I've got a job to do when I hit the ice and I can do it. I can do it well. The other experience with Team People magazine was um, Team People wanted to do an article on teen drinking and the partying um, atmospheres that were out there. So they sent a reporter and a photographer to Las Cruces, and I uh, took this uh, this report. I was kind of their uh, guide into the world of teen drinking in Las Cruces. <laughs> um, and so I was, you know, a teen myself, you know, and. 18, 19 years old, a freshman in college, um, you know, who had been experienced, been exposed to, uh, to underage drinking and uh, with friends that were partaking. And so I um, took a, a reporter and photographer around to some various parties on a Friday night and, you know, out to some out by the river where, where teens gathered. And so they, uh, they talked to a bunch of people and, and that appeared um, in a, an edition of Teen People magazine. I don't have that that uh, article, though. I wish I did. Um, I didn't actually write that one. Um, I was just more the, the guide uh, for that one. But that moment sticks out. Why, why did that stick out for you? Well, one thing that it allowed me to do as a young journalist was meet a professional journalist. And I heard the questions that he was asking. And I saw how the photographer was, um, you know, getting the images that would best tell this story. 
And, you know, just building a rapport with those that you're reporting is uh, maybe what I learned most about that. You know, it was, hey, you know, welcome me into your world. I want to know your world. It was uh, uh, interesting to see how a reporter on that level was able to go inside that world and accurately uh, portray it in the, in the story that eventually appeared in Team People. I, I think it was one of the, pop, the, the publications that tackled real teen issues. Yeah, and, and real things that, that people were struggling with, and especially, you know, the LGBTQ community, right? I, I mean, I remember in, in this publication that I have, uh, the one-year anniversary, they have a large story on, on Matthew Shepard, who was the uh, teen um, in the Wyoming, Colorado area that was, uh, you know, that was unfortunately killed in, a, in an incident where he was... Uh, um, mistreated for, for being LGBTQ. And, uh, you know, that was to say, you know, this, this isn't right. You know, everyone, every teenager that's out there, uh, deserves to be loved, deserves to have, um, um, people that, uh, that support them. And, uh, it doesn't matter if you're gay, it doesn't matter if you're black, it doesn't matter if you're Indian Canadian. Right. Like, I mean, you have dreams and you deserve to get them and everybody needs to have respect for one another. And uh, teen people did not shy away from, from those kinds of subjects. And, and, you know, I mean, on the cover, you've got in sync, right? They realize <laughs> that uh, why are teens going to pick this up? It's going to be in sync. But now that we've got you to pick up the magazine, we're going to give you something else. And like the 20 teens that are going to change the world, you know, there was, um, there were actresses and there were models and there were singers, but there were also um, people that were uh, like students against drunk driving, right? was one of those. Um, a gay rights activist who was a teenager was one of those. Um, so that was nice. One of the people was uh, Katie Nida, who um, interestingly, I, I interviewed a couple of years later, uh, she became the first female um, Division One football player. She played at New Mexico, um, and, and I went to New Mexico State, which is different from New Mexico. But when New Mexico came to play, I interviewed Katie uh, for a story for my for my college newspaper at the time. Uh, so it was kind of cool to see her among the twenty that would change the world as well. And uh, she was a kicker, and she she became the first uh, female to play Division One football in. Uh, Yes. And so it was neat to uh, um, you know, profile people like Katie as some of the 20 teens that were going to change the world. What inspired you to become a journalist? Uh, so growing up, I was always a big uh, sports fan, especially basketball. I love basketball. Um, it became clear by about middle school I was not going to be in the NBA. <laughs> um, but I still got my hands on anything I could to do with basketball. And I began reading a lot about it. And I began uh, saying, you know, I think I think I can write about basketball um, somewhat better than what I was reading. 
And, and so I kind of wrote my own basketball magazine and I would kind of cover the uh, New Mexico State University basketball team, which is here in Las Cruces. And so then when the opportunity came, I said, I want to work for the daily newspaper because I think I can uh, write about basketball. Now that didn't end up happening. They actually put me into more of a features role, but I loved it. And I said, this is great. And, uh, and so that's kind of where I started my career in journalism. And uh, it's taken me more to a, uh, to a news role um, now um, than where I anticipated, which was sticking in sports. And what's your job title now? What do you do at the newspaper? Sure. So I am the news director, uh, which is the, uh, for all intents and purposes, the editor of the uh, Las Cruces Sun News. Mm -hmm. And so I manage a team of about uh, 10 reporters. Since March, uh, the building's been closed, uh, even the front desk, and so we are all encouraged to work from home. Um, so we've all had to uh, adjust and, and say, all right, how are we going to uh, put out a daily newspaper while we're all spread out at home? And, and in some ways, it's, uh, you know, it's not all that difficult. Um, I could still have Zoom meetings. Uh, we can still, you know, I have a, uh, a messaging system on our computer that I can get to, to reporters say, hey, go cover this, go cover that. And, uh, you know, they're filing their stories. I can read them. Uh, yeah, I, I think the one thing that we, you know, the camaraderie between reporters, right? Those little conversations that you have in the newsroom that can mean so much that you might be missing out now. Um, and so you want to keep spirits high. We have like our, our video Fridays that a re different reporter will pick a theme for. And so we'll come in our Halloween costumes <laughs> or we'll, you know, come uh, showing our cute animals or you know, whatever the theme may be. Um, and, and so that kind of keeps everybody engaged and, and looking forward to, to Fridays and, you know, ending the, the week on a good note. One of the hardest hit places in the nation right now is El Paso, Texas. And El Paso is about 45 minutes to the south of Las Cruces. Um, so we've really been uh, talking about uh, the severity of COVID and about the need to stay safe. Um, the New Mexico governor has, has been one of the uh, governors in the United States that has tried to put the most amount of restrictions on, on residents. Um, which has helped New Mexico from their numbers to rise, right? And, and it's also created a lot of um, stress from people that feel like, no, we want to go out to the bars and the restaurants and partake. And you have this governor that's saying, hey, hang on, you know, that's not safe right now. Um, and, and so there is a lot of tension in, in this state uh, between the, uh, um, you know, need to, um, safely shut down versus, you know, people's wants and desires to, to open up and, and experience life before COVID. Mm -hmm. And we're talking two days before the U.S. election. So how are, how are things uh, going in that respect in, in Las Cruces? Oh, sure, sure. Um, yeah, Las Cruces is, uh, is a town that, uh, that leans blue, but it's in a part of the country, uh, southern New Mexico, which is, which is very much uh, red. Um, in our congressional district, um, Trump won by more than uh, nine points. Um, in our specific part of New Mexico, though Hillary Clinton won in 2016 in New Mexico, and Joe Biden um, predicted to, to take New Mexico. But we're still in an area that is very much supporters of Trump. Um, and we've, uh, um, you know, covered a lot of uh, 
issues between those two kind of camps. You know, it, it's very polarized, more so than I've seen in my um, you know 20 years as an active journalist. Our big message to our readers is, you know, the, the vote's going to come on Tuesday. Somebody's going to be elected. Let's be adults and be safe. And, you know, let's come together as a community here and uh, not resort to antics that might uh, lead to uh, uh, to violence or anything like that. Let's, let's keep it safe. And, and we've been able to do that in Las Cruces as a community. So that, that's nice to see. Has your paper endorsed a candidate? No, no, we did not uh, do endorsements this year intentionally. Um, you know, we wanted to stick to uh, to just fact-based journalism, right? We, we brought all of our candidates in or talked to them on the phone um, instead of bringing them in because of COVID. Um, talked to them and said, you know, tell us who you are. And we presented that information to our readers so that they could make uh, decisions on which candidate to support. Um, and so we did that all the way up to the uh, U.S. Senate level in New Mexico. Journalism has profoundly changed in the past two or three decades, uh, first with cable news and talk TV, uh, and now with social media and user-generated journalism. Um, and we're also seeing a profound distrust of the media and of this profession, which has traditionally been seen as a, uh, an important function in the democratic, the small D democratic system. So where do you see journalism going from here? You know, it's, there used to be a big push that, you know, print journalism had to maintain, right? That's where uh, print journalists were the ones that were, were trusted. And I see that changing, and not in the sense that they, they won't be trusted, but just that people rely on a on the printed word, right? I mean, we are going to a completely online society. Uh, we have to transition, even those of us in the print newspapers, we know that's happening. And, you know, how do we get to an audience that's, uh, you know, under 30? People aren't subscribing to newspapers, we know that. So where is that audience? You know, they're on Instagram, they're on TikTok, they're online, and we have to take that trusted messages that we're known for and deliver it to an audience that wants it through TikTok, through, through Instagram, um, through Facebook and use those social media channels. Right. I mean, that's the new, the new publisher. Right. And so we have to uh, be able to communicate clearly and we have to be a trusted voice in our community. And the fact that people aren't subscribing to the print edition is fine. We can still accomplish those tasks just the, delivering the message in a different way. Uh, so we do have a daily print product, but that's kind of at the end of the uh, the thinking, right? When we come in and start the day, it's what's our website going to look like? Um, you know, what time do we want this story to get out on social media? Um, do we want to, uh, you know, what are we going to put on Instagram today? Um, you know, these are the types of things we're thinking about. Um, most of my journalists are, are trained to um, um, edit videos, you know, and not just uh, write a, a 300 word story. Um, you know, you will produce a video to go along with that. And so the role of TV journalists, radio journalists, print journalists, which was very structured when I went to school. Now it's just journalists. You know, everybody's a multimedia journalist. You have to be able to do all three uh, to succeed 
today. And so, you know, how are we going to engage our audience? You know, that's the first question we ask with, which, with every story. And, you know, the deadline might be, well, you know, get me something by 11. And then, you know, I'll take that and I'll turn it around for the print edition. But that's an afterthought now. Hmm. Uh, at the beginning of our conversation, you showed me this list of guidelines the team people sent you when they invited you to join the news team. Uh, and I'm sure that everyone who works for you and works for the newspaper follows similar practices that they've honed through their careers and through their education. Um, how do you feel as a journalist and, and an editor um, about the rise of citizen journalism? Yeah, I, th- I think it's great, right? I, I mean, you have so many more eyes out in your community. Uh, you know, something that we rely on is like community groups on Facebook. And, and they're the ones that are going to see what's happening in the community first, right? And, and so in a sense, we're kind of following up on that. And we say, if you want the real story, come to us. Because as we know on, on Facebook, on Instagram, you might get parts of a story. And you might hear like, well, it's, you know, I introduced to it here, but what's the real story? You know, what actually happened? And that's when we want people to come to, to our, our news publication to get that. Um, so, you know, we're, we're competing with citizens to be first. I get that, but that's fine. They, they can be first, but we want to be, you know, the accurate source of information that people come to to see like, hey, this is you know, this is actually what happened. Yeah. So they want to be first, but you want to be right. Certainly. <laughs> yeah. That's a good distinction. Yeah. And, and media literacy is, is important, right? I mean, as consumers of media, we have a responsibility to detect, you know, what is real, true um, journalism versus what might be considered like opinion journalism, right? And, or, um, you know, taking things out of context is huge, right? And you might, and, and that's one of the things that team people advised in their rules was if you're going to quote somebody, it has to be in the right context. Somebody might say something and taken out of context, you know, you might think, whoa, you know, what is this person talking about? But that's so important. You see it today, you know, a lot of, uh, of politicians will, you know, Say, my opponent said this, which is true, you know, that that's not untrue, but without the proper context, it can be twisted to mean something that it was never intended to mean. Mm-hmm. And so that is so important with my journalists today, you know, is, is you've got to put everything you get into context. A, a context just matters. And a lot of citizen journalisms, I think, miss that point. And just the, you know, and it becomes irresponsible if you're not using that information within context. Mm-hmm. It can be irresponsible and it can be damaging. Um, you know, and I think that is something that uh, as consumers of media, we need to be aware of. As journalists, you know, we want to look at the full thing, right? Through whole 360 point of view. And um, you know, there's a lot of people that will say, no, stop. All we want to show you is this. You know, this side right here, right here. And, and yeah, I got to be careful not to get caught into that bubble. Uh, you know, this uh, first thing you learn, there's two sides to every story. And, uh, you know, if, if your mom says she loves you, you need to double check that with another source. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully you can. <laughs> sure, sure. 
So what tools do journalists have today to burst that bubble, as you say, and to to get at the truth? Sure, sure. Well, you know, I mean, there's uh, all sorts of, uh, of, of public records that are available that, uh, you know, my team is very adept at going out and getting to help them source information. If somebody says this is uh, this is, is happening, you know, let's go to the uh, uh, the public records and see what's on that. A very big issue that we're dealing with today in, in Las Cruces or over the weekend is in uh, uh, as a group was counting election ballots in, in Doniana County, which is the county that, uh, that I live in, um, each side, Republicans and Democrats, are allowed challengers inside this process, right? So if there is an absentee ballot that is questionable, a challenger can step in and say, hey, this, is, uh, this isn't right. We don't think this ballot should count. And that's, uh, that's part of the process. Well, on Friday, the four Republican challengers that were inside the warehouse where ballots are being counted were kicked out. And our county clerk says that they were being uh, belligerent, that they were being unruly, and we needed to kick them out. Two of them were later said, like, okay, you can come back in. The county Republican chair was able to appoint other challengers. So there was never a point where there were county ballots without a challenger. But there was, uh, you know, some disagreement between what actually happened in that warehouse, you know, and we have the county clerk telling us, well, they were being belligerent. And we have the Republican Party saying that they were just doing their job. They were challenging. You know, that's what they're there for. Well, who's right? You know, and, and that's our job as journalists is to go in there and figure out who's right. And if we say, you know, this person saying this thing and this person saying this thing and they don't really add up, you know, and that's that's a part of the story. That's your first story. So now it's up to us. Our responsibility to our readers is to find out what actually happened. How do we do that? Right. There is a video and we need to get access to that video. And so we have a right to request that access to it and, and, you know, to tell the county clerk and the Republican Party, like the only way that our readers are going to be able to take you seriously, if this is what you say happened, is to back that up on video. So we have to hold our, our public officials accountable in that way. Mm-hmm. How confident are you feeling about what's going to happen on Tuesday and in the days that follow? Oh, I think interestingly, it'll be a different election day than any other that I've been involved in because I don't know if we'll have results. There's been so many people that have voted by absentee ballot this year, and it takes time to count those absentee ballots. Um, and so I don't think that we're going to have a full um, accounting of, uh, of who won the election on Tuesday, right? It'll come on Wednesday. And um, in our presidential election, you know, it may even come later than that because some states uh, won't be able to count their absentee ballots till then. So it's going to be interesting and a lot of rhetoric on Tuesday saying, you know, possibly claiming that uh, – that you're, you know, ahead in the polls where it may be a lot of outstanding ballots yet to count. So, you know, the message for, from us to our readers is going to be hold tight, you know, and, and let's, let's wait until everything's in. The irony is that we live in an era when we expect results quickly. Um, yeah. uh, and, uh, and yet this election is going to uh, deliver results gradually. Mm-hmm. 
And I think that there's going to be some some tension between people's expectations of, of the way the system should work now in 2020 versus the way it's actually going to unfold because this mm-hmm. the pandemic has certainly complicated how we hold elections. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, and, and, you know, just if the community can just be calm after the elections and, and not you know, have that expectation that things, numbers are going to come in right away. And, you know, once everything is in, you know, let's have some analysis of what this means for our community and not jump to conclusions and just everything so black and white, you know, it's not everything's going to be great if this candidate wins or everything's going to be horrible if this candidate wins. No, there's, we're operating in the gray area. There are some things that are going to be good and some things that are going to be bad, no matter which candidate wins. And so let's provide that analysis and, uh, you know, stick to, to the facts and hopefully toward science, right? Like that's, that will provide us a lot of, of answers. People have a lot of power and influence to do that, right? To, to craft the world that they desire. And so, um, you know, instead of resorting to other means, which are destructive, Let's build, you know, as a community. And, and it's important for us as a newspaper to maintain that message and that confidence that, you know, things are going to be all right. There's people out there that just have not paid attention to elections. And they're finally saying, seeing like, you know, I can be a part of this process, right? Like I, I have a voice with my vote. You know, Las Cruces is a... Uh, minority majority town, which means the uh, majority of our residents are traditionally considered minorities, right? Mostly Hispanic. Um, and, and it's great to, to live in a town like that and have a voice. Are you born and raised in Las Cruces? Born and raised in Las Cruces, yes. Yeah. And you think you'll stay there? For now. <laughs> <laughs> Where would you like to go if you weren't living there? Oh, you know, I, I, I like the Southwest. I will stay in the Southwest. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Tucson, Phoenix, Albuquerque, uh, you know, those are some great towns, um, even up into southern Utah and, and Colorado. You were 18, you said, when you first got involved with teen people. What advice would you give your 18-year-old self today? Oh, what if I would say... Um, I would have liked to have done more with teen people, right? To actually write that article on teen drinking would have been neat. Now, I was nowhere near qualified at 18, but I wish I would have put myself out there more and had the confidence to say I'd like to write an article um, other than just kind of being a, a person who, you know, team, part of the news team that uh, the editors thought, well, you know, he can do this interview and, and, uh, then we'll kind of rewrite it and and put it in there. I would have rather have um, been more bold with my editors and say, you know, let me have the chance to to write this article. And it probably would have been terrible. (laughs) But, you know, one thing I've learned, you, you, you know, fortune favors the bold, right? So you've got to go out there and say this. And if an editor were to see that, and would have seen like, well, he's trying, right? Like he's, uh, he's not there yet as a journalist, but he's an act taking that first step in saying, I want to be the writer of this article. Like that's, there's so much importance in being bold and taking that first step. 
Are you bolder now than you were when you were 18? Oh, certainly. Yeah. <laughs> I was very shy, very shy as a teenager. Um, and, and so I've had to, but I've had to overcome that because of journalism. And how did you do that? Yeah, it's, you know, the practice makes perfect, right? I mean, you interview enough people and you start to have confidence in, um, you know, yourself, your words, you know, you find yourself and, uh, yeah, it's just something that nat- happens naturally over time. You know, I think there are a few of us that have that natural confidence. I'm not one of them. Um, it, it's, but if you practice it enough, um, it will start to, to feel natural. It's like faking it till you make it. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, this was a great chat. Do you have anything else that you wanted to add? Uh, no, I think that's uh, that's it, and I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, hearing some more of your your podcasts and to to keep that Teen People legacy alive. So thank you. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks. Bye. Bye. At the beginning of this episode, I referenced that old trope that everything's online. Well, I looked for Lucas's review of Teen People magazine online and couldn't find it. However, the Library of Congress has back issues of the Las Cruces Sun News from the time when Lucas worked as a student journalist at the paper. So if his review was published in print, it might still be possible to look it up and read the article that led to his journey as a Teen People News team member. Thanks for listening to this episode of Teen People. Please follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Teen People Pod. Until next time, I'm Anna Soper.